Well, as you know, we have been coming through the dispensations, and I say this every time just to kind of reinforce everything. You know, the dispensations are probably the key to uh, when the Bible says rightly dividing the word of truth. It's absolutely probably uh, the most single essential thing uh, in really putting your Bible together. Obviously, there's many essential things in different aspects of the Bible, but what we're trying to do here in Institute is to teach you the Bible, give you a understandable, workable format of how the scriptures themselves go together that we can eliminate for you all of the problems that you will get into when you start to deal with people in the Bible, all the heresies, all the bad teachings. Um, we, we try to cover it all, and we have been through so much before we got to the dispensations, and now, you know, that we're in the dispensations, you can see how, you know, all this material will, will, will go together for you. And the last time we were together, we talked about the dispensation of the, of the church, how that the body of Christ uh, comes into effect, you know, through a transitional process, and then it, uh, it, it uh, lasts for approximately 2,000 years, and then it, it, uh, it exits this earth, and which brings us into the next dispensation which is the tribulation period. Now, I, not only do I want to teach you how to rightly divide by putting the dispensations in the right place, but I also want to give you um, all the major events so you can have them in some kind of order uh, to better understand where they fit in to the dispensations. And, you know, right before we get into the tribulation, uh, and in this section, there's two things that I want to talk about that aren't, that aren't dispensations themselves, but they're very important because um, they, they, the one of them, which is the rapture of the church, is a bridge. There's two bridges, um, one on each side of the tribulation period. The bridge into it will be the rapture. The bridge out of it will be the second coming. And we probably won't get into the second coming today. We'll save that for next time. But the other aspect of it during this time will be the judgment seat of Christ. So I, I want to put those things into, into a context for you. Now, you know, the rapture of the church, as I said, uh, it ends the church age. We saw last time how that we had seven periods of church history, and we based that easily on Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3. And then if you come over here to Revelation chapter 4, Now, we have come through the seven periods, and we saw the last one being Laodicea. Now, we get into 4.1. After this, I looked up, behold, a door, uh, uh, a door was opened in heaven, <clears throat> and a voice which I heard was like of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. Now, you have, in verse 1, <clears throat> you have the rapture of the church. The church had been now up here, I think, I think up to chapter, uh, end of chapter three, 
I think like 19 or 20 times you find a reference to the word church. Uh, and then from four on, you don't find the word church mentioned anymore until you get to the last chapter when he's just closing out everything. And that shows you that the church is gone now. And in four one, you have all the elements of what we know from other places in the Bible, the uh, rapture of the church. We have a door open. In the book of Revelation, and breaking down the book of Revelation, uh, a door opens two times. Once in Revelation chapter 4, and somebody goes up. Once in Revelation chapter 19, and somebody comes down. You always want to look <clears throat> in the Bible anytime it talks about a door being opened in heaven. Uh, you want to you look at it. Uh, it's going to be either dealing with the, probably in the Old Testament, second coming, but you always want to, it'll always help you with the context. Notice here, it says, the voice which I heard was as of a trumpet. That'll be over there in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, where, and also 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, that it's always connected with the rapture of the church. Uh, and it says, another key phrase there is, come up hither. Uh, you'll find that, you know, uh, people who have a tough time with the concept of the rapture, and um, and one of the problems that they have with it is the fact that the word rapture is not found in the Bible. So they 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 question it on that authority or on that basis. Certainly not that authority. And then of course, uh, um, uh, when you lay the rapture out in the Bible, you realize that 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 is not the name that that the Bible gives to it. But that's the name that God's people down through history, um, certainly you can see it in the Song of Solomon. The word rapture comes from the word rapturous or love, uh, wound up in love, raptured by love, lifted up, picked up uh, with love, concased with love. And, of course, it was given to that uh, at, um, name based on the people who really loved the Lord that that loved the fact that he was coming back for them and understood the great doctrine of Song of Solomon, how it's a picture of how I should love him based on showing me how he loves me. But in, in, in doctrinally in the Bible, the word come up hither is, is the key because the rapture from a Bible standpoint is likened to a harvest. And when you look at it that way, then you know, you, it totally makes sense. People who get hung up on things like that or, you know, are people who are very shallow in the Bible. I mean, to which I have told them many, many times, you don't find the word Bible in the Bible, but we don't seem to have a problem with that. There's a teaching going around today by, in Baptist and certainly the neo-evangelical crowd that the doctrine of the rapture is non-biblical, that there is no rapture. And you're finding that more and more and more uh, coming into play, especially in the neo-evangelical churches. But it's also in Baptist churches, guys who have completely departed from the Word of God. And as I've said many, many times, when you lose God's mind, the Word of God, then in time you lose your own mind, and that's where they're at. You could not ever, 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 you know, get to the... I, I mean, I just don't know how you get to the place where you discount the concept of the rapture of the church, um, it's all the way through the Bible. Certainly, if you put the book of Revelation in a, in a workable order for you, 
you see it in chapter 4. But the word come up hither, uh, there's actually, if we're going to use the word rapture, there's actually three raptures in the Bible. And it, it's a matter of understanding that uh, the, the rapture, as we call it, is really a harvest, and there's three parts to a harvest. So you will find in the Bible three places where it says to somebody, come up hither. And that will mark the three gatherings of the harvest. And of course, the first one will be the first fruits with the Old Testament saints. And they're found, you'll find come up hither. Uh, you'll find come up hither there in uh, uh, Proverbs chapter 25. Then the main body of the harvest will be the church. And this is found in Revelation chapter 4. And then like any harvest or any farmer, you don't, you don't, you, you pick the fruit that comes early. Then you go and get the main body of the fruit. But then there's always fruit that isn't ripe at the time of the harvest. So you come back and get them later. And those are called the gleanings. And those will be, that's found in Revelation chapter 11. And that will be the tribulation saints. So, you know, the idea that a guy takes the word rapture because he can't find it, throws out the whole doctrine just simply shows how ridiculously stupid you are when it comes to the Bible. The rapture has probably been the single main doctrine of, well, not the single main, but certainly one of the main doctrines of the church since its beginning. And, you know, to just discount that and throw it away based on the fact that you don't think it it really is true, you know, just shows how little you really know about the Bible. But when you put it back into a concept of understanding, um, you know, that it's a harvest, then it all begins to make sense, especially when you find, come up hither three times uh, in the Bible. Uh, Notice in verse 2, it says, immediately, like twinkling of an eye, uh, I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one that sat on the throne. So immediately, you know, you're transported to heaven and the throne of God and as uh, takes place. Now, come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to show you uh, again this order. And I've never really understood how a person that rejects the rapture gets around 1 Corinthians chapter 15 or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 for that matter. Because if you don't put those into a context of, and I'm going to continue to use the word rapture now that you understand it, uh, I, I don't know what you do with these passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is dealing with the resurrection of Christ uh, as every chapter is going to be dealing with something that this church is having an issue with and then moves into our resurrection body. And he says in verse 41... There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for one differeth from another star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. Now, this is talking about your body. You die in dishonor, and uh, and then you get raised up in, in glory, in honor. And so he's saying here, that uh, then he says in verse 40, 
that there's terrestrial bodies, that's the body you have right now, and then there's celestial bodies, that's the body you're going to get. And then he says, verse 41, there was one glory of the sun, one glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, so also is the resurrection, uh, as as one star differs from another star in glory, so also is the resurrection of the dead. And of course, he's showing us and moving to that uh, what we're, when we get resurrected, not everybody, you may get the same glorified body, but obviously at the judgment seat of Christ, you know, the, the glory uh, is not going to be across the board based on what you did. And we'll talk about that here in just a little bit. And then he says, so is the resurrection of the dead. Uh, it is shown in corruption, it's raised in incorruption. That's talking about your body, physical body, being buried, dying in this life, and then being raised in corruption. Uh, incorruptible. It is shown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is shown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is is shown, here it comes, a natural body, but is raised a spiritual body. As it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last, Adam, made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not the first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, Adam, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. And uh, as, the, uh, as, is the earth, uh, as, as is the earthy, such are they that are earthy, and as the heavenly, such are they that are also heavenly. Uh, and as we, here it comes, and as we have borne the image of the earthly, that's right now, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now the image there will be right now the fallen image that you have. You go back to Genesis, you know that Adam and Eve were created in God's likeness, that's his physical appearance, and in God's image, that's his spiritual. The image of God, and you want to remember this, this is defined for you in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 and 3. The image of God will always be Jesus Christ. Always. And that's, you know, that's just, you just need to understand that and always remember that. And so right now, when Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says that Adam lost that image, and then from that point on, he produces his sons and daughters in his own image, and that is the fallen image now that he's lost God's image. Adam's the first guy in the Bible, and Eve too, who lost their salvation. They had it, and then they lost it. And uh, it's a sense where I know they didn't have it like you have it, but uh, or got it the way you got it. Adam was born born again, but uh, he he loses that image. So does she. And so what he's saying in forty nine that just as you bore the image of the earthly, that is your physical father now in sin, which is going to be sown in corruption, you're going to bear the image of the heavenly at some point in time. Now, this is what he says. Now, this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, And uh, uh, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And of course, this is the changing aspect. And then he says, just so you see it, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, there's the Revelation 4 immediately. uh, At the last trump, that for the trumpet shall sound. Now there's the voice of a trumpet for that spoke with him and said, come up hither. 
and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. And this corruption must put on incorruption, this mortality must put in mortality. Uh, so when the corruptible have put on incorruption, this mortal shall put on immortality, then shall be brought the pass of saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So that is the, you know, there it is very clear for you. Now come back to 15 and look at verse 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become, here it is, the first fruits of them that slept. Now, Christ is associated with the Old Testament saints that come up because they come up with him. So they're called the first fruits of the harvest. When you go over to Revelation chapter 11, you'll find that the tribulation saints are clearly called the gleanings, the last part. Now, he says this, uh, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead, the Lord Jesus. For as an Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, watch this next verse. Everybody, Old Testament saints, the church, and the tribulation saints are going to be made alive. But watch the next verse. Every man in his own order. There's an order to this harvest. Here it is. One. Christ, the first fruits. There's the Old Testament saints. Afterwards, uh, 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 afterwards, they that are at Christ at his coming. That's the church, the rapture. And then verse 24, then cometh the end. There's Revelation chapter 11, tribulation saints, which get taken up at the end of the tribulation period. Clearly showing that uh, there's three aspects to this harvest which if we're going to call it a rapture, there's three parts to this rapture would probably be a better way to say it than saying that there's three raptures, even though it doesn't matter. There's three come up hitters in the Bible. Now, along with this, you have 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So let's go back to that. Now, this is another passage that I, I just don't understand how you get around if you just want to throw out the concept of the rapture of the church. He says in verse 13, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Very, I mean, there's nothing to explain here. It's just so clear and just following it. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Sleep here being somebody dead. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. There it is again. Now let me stop here because guys get confused on this because um, there's two sets of trumpets. And there's a set of trumpets in the tribulation period for the nation of Israel. And then there's this trumpet here for the resurrection of the church. The guys that don't know that or people that don't know that, that's why they get confused and try to get 
the rapture connected somehow into the tribulation period or whatever, vice versa. And of course, that's, that's not the case. There's clearly two trumpets. There's a trumpet for the resurrection of the dead in the church age, and then there's the, which is the last trump, the last trumpet of church age before that dispensation ends. And then there's the seven trumpets found in the book of Revelation. And when a guy gets those confused because he doesn't know how to rightly divide the book through dispensations, well, you can see where the problem would probably begin to come in. Um, so, uh, and it says here, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. That's the people who were sown in corruption, but now are going to be raised in incorruption. And it says, then shall we alive shall remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we uh, comfort one another with these words, clearly showing you that the rapture of the church, as we know it, using that term, um, is clearly defined in two New Testament passages. And, uh, you know, it's, it, it's in, they're incredible passages, and I don't know how you get around it other than just not caring what the Bible says. Now, again, if that wasn't enough, we have, as I gave you last week, and we started here today, Revelation chapter 1, 2, 3, church age, 4, tribul- uh, four rapture, somebody goes out, door opens in heaven, 4 through 19, or 4 through 18, tribulation, 19, a door opens up again, somebody comes down, second coming, and then right through the millennium, new heavens, new earth, and eternity. That's the book of Revelation, so clearly taught there. Another one would be back in, in, in Genesis chapter 5, and this is a type, and this would be Enoch. And the Bible says that Enoch walked with God uh, for 300 years after he got Methuselah, and Enoch was not because God took him. Enoch is a picture of the church. If you look at, if you look at that passage back there and put it into the type, clearly you have Enoch in his time as a picture of the church age, the moment Enoch goes out, the judgment of God in the form of a flood, which you're already told as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the coming of the Son of Man is a picture of the tribulation period. Then you have in Isaiah, the Bible tells us that the time that God is dealing with the earth and the flood has something to do with the same time that God deals with Israel in the tribulation period. Then now you see how the picture is complete. Enoch, as a type of the church, gets taken out, translated, the Bible says, raptured out, and then the tribulation begins. So you have everything there as a picture. And then, of course, you know, it's a thing where uh, it's over and over again in the Bible. And if that wasn't enough, come over to Song of Solomon chapter 2. Now, this is stuff that when a guy rejects the Bible, he, he can't get anymore. And it's a thing where, you know, all I've done in anything I've given you is just took you to the Bible and, and laid an absolute uh, trail, a paper trail of, of principles that support the teaching. I always tell you, you got to have established truth, which I just gave you, but then you got to have established history. Was that established truth 
established down through the history of the church. And there's no greater doctrine probably established with the church for the last 2,000 years than the doctrine of the rapture of the church. Now, the book of Song of Solomon is a unique book. Obviously, Solomon is writing it about the wife that he found, uh, that he is better than all the rest. And the Bible says he's got a thousand wives, 600 and 300 or 400, whatever. He's got, he's got, a, he's got a thousand women. And uh, out of that, he found one that is the virtuous woman that he writes about in chapter 30. Guys have made uh, reference to the fact that it's most likely the Queen of Sheba. Probably so. Maybe it is. There's no truth. Whatever it is, she's black. And that immediately fits into the church because um, the church is to be a servant of servants. That's why the first man saved in the Bible, like you and I are saved, in Acts 8 is the Ethiopian eunuch. He's a slave, servant of servants. And when Christ is going to the cross, they compel Simon the Cyrenian. Cyrenian is in North Africa. He's a black man to help Christ to the cross with carrying the cross or the burden of the cross, a servant of servants. Clearly, it shows you that our attitude, and we're going to talk about this tomorrow, <clears throat> surely it shows us that our attitude about Christ should be an attitude of a servant of servants. Now, in chapter 2, you have Christ and you talking back and forth. The book of Song of Solomon is, in the Old Testament, the almost, probably all the whole Bible, is the most intimate book uh, in, the New Te- in the Old Testament. The most intimate book in the New Testament would be the book of Ephesians. And they both deal with a relationship with Christ. In the Old Testament in chapter 2, uh, as throughout the book of Song of Solomon, if you ever want to learn how to have a working, loving relationship with Christ, you'll never do that without understanding the book of Song of Solomon. I don't know what it was six, seven, eight years ago uh, on New Year's Eve. Uh, we used to take whole books and break them down for the four hours, five hours. Uh, you know, we actually did the Song of Solomon. I think it's in the bookstore. I think John put it into a book form. Um, and, you know, what I did is completely break down how that whole thing works for us. And in chapter 2, um, you know, what we have here, and it starts out in verse 1 with Christ speaking uh, of himself, and it says, I am the rose of Sharon. The, see the I am there like Abraham, I am, I am that I, or, Mos, or Moses, I am that I am. Uh, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys, uh, so is my uh, love among the daughters. As the apple tree among the trees of the wood, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down under his shadow with great delight, and his fruit was sweet unto my taste. That's a picture of our fellowship with God. Note he's likened to an apple tree. And uh, apples in the Bible are type of the Word of God. And one of the things that I love about this place that I never want to leave is we were in the Apple Center. You see that big sign coming up there. And that is so true. God, in his, if there's any predestination at all, it's the fact that God predestined us to be at the place teaching the Bible and the Word of God and calling it the Apple Center. Because that's where we're at. And it's a picture of somebody under his shadow with great delight and his fruit sweet to his taste. He, uh, he, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner over me was love. 
Stay me with flagons, comfort me with apples, for I am sick of love. That's, we know that as lovesick. And, you know, at the apple tree up there, somebody's sitting under the apple tree and, and, and like a shadow, goes back to the 1940s with the Andrews sisters during World War II that sang the old song, Don't Sit Under the Apple Tree with Anybody Else But Me. And God's people are famous for doing exactly that. They're sitting under that apple tree with everybody else except him. That's a good sermon if you want to preach it sometime. Then it says, his left hand is under my head, his right hand doth embrace me. Boy, there's a load on that. We don't have time to get into it. Then he says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the rose and the hinds of the field that you stir up, awake my, awake my love, do we please? There's somebody saying, don't awaken him till he's ready. And then in verse 8, paragraph mark, we're going to change subjects now. Everything up to this point has been my salvation, my relationship, my love with him, my fellowship with him. Now it changes in verse 8. You're left with in verse 7, don't awake him till he pleases. Now in verse 8, he's up and coming back. Paragraph mark. The voice of my beloved Behold, he cometh leaping upon the mountains and skipping upon the hills. My beloved is like a uh, roe or a young heart. Uh, behold, he standeth behind our wall. He looketh forth at the lattice, showing himself through, uh, look, uh, at our windows, showing himself through the lattice. In your Bible, the study of windows and the lattice is an incredible study. We don't have time, not our purpose today, but it's an incredible study. You'll find there's doors in heaven. You'll find there's windows in heaven, and you'll find there's, there's a lattice in heaven, a grid work. And, of course, uh, um, you know, it's, it, if you want a key to outer space going up to the third heaven through the second heaven, um, that's where you've got to start. Now, here we go. Verse 9 is the Christ looking at us as he's coming back, speaking to us at the rapture of the church. Verse 10, my beloved spake and said unto me, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Now, let let me show you what follows. Here's a key to the rapture. For lo, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear. Now notice the winter's gone, the rain uh, is gone, and the flowers appear. We know that April showers bring May what? So we're getting a key here that this rapture of the church is going to take some time in a time frame between May and June. Hence, when we get raptured, we go to the marriage of the Lamb. We'll talk about that future. But the bottom line is this is why 90% of your marriage is on this earth without ever understanding the principle, ever understanding the doctrine will be May and June. It's always a June bride, and I guarantee you, when the rapture takes place, it'll come takes place sometime in that time period, if, if that's the way God is counting it, the way we're counting it. But it'll be May or June, whatever. Uh, and he says, though the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear in the earth, the time of the singing of the birds has come, and the voice of the turtle, turtle dove, uh, is heard in our land. Now, verse 13 is another incredible key. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs, and the vines with her tender grape arise 
uh, give a good smell. Arise, my love, the church, and my fair one, the body of Christ, and come away. Rapture the church. Now notice your second key, verse 13. The fig tree putteth forth her green figs. That fig tree is the nation of Israel. We all know that. Now here's what you got to figure out if you want to figure out the rapture. Don't try it because you'll never get it, but I'm just telling you, if you want to figure it out, this is what you got to do. First of all, you see that Israel is a fig tree. When Israel became a nation in 1948, you're told that she put forth leaves. At the rapture of the church, those leaves now have come into green figs. They're not ripe yet. During the tribulation period, they ripen, and at the second coming of Christ, he gleans those, that gleaning, and he takes those figs that are now ripe as the nation of Israel being restored. Now, if you could figure out the time frame from a fig tree having leaves and it, how long it takes to put forth green figs, and then you could figure out how you take that key and find that key in the Bible, how that thing translates, you'd have the time and the date or at least approximate time of the, of the rapture of the church. Now, I say that knowing that nobody will ever do that. That key in there is whatever. I, most guys can't even see that, what I just gave you. Uh, so let alone try to figure it out. But that's, that's what you got. And so it's, it's a thing where the rapture of the church or God's harvest is without a doubt the greatest simple teaching uh, uh, that's been taught, established with Bible doctrine, established through the historical aspect of the church that is, when you meet somebody today who doesn't believe it uh, or doesn't believe it anymore or rejects it, you know you're dealing with an idiot. Uh, you're dealing with somebody who has lost his mind when it comes to the Word of God because they have rejected the clear truth for whatever. And so that is not a dispensation in itself, but it is a bridge from the dispensation of the church to the beginning of the dispensation that we're going to talk about today, which is the tribulation period. And so I want you to have that in the order of the, your events. Now, the second event that I want to place for you and put it into this dispensation will be the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, you can see up here on our chart that the rapture is going there, which starts the tribulation period. And then during the tribulation period, you have what we know as the judgment seat of Christ. And we've talked about the nation of Israel being God's structure in the Old Testament. And we've talked about the church, the body of Christ being God's structure in the New Testament. Both of them have a judgment. Israel's judgment will be the tribulation period. That's where she's judged by God uh, for her disobedience as a nation. You and I are judged uh, at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I've given you a lot of different things on this. Um, you know, I've, I, to put it into an understandable context, I think probably the simplest and the easiest is that little three-point deal I gave you on sinner, son, and servant. And it shows you that for you and for me, there's three judgments. 
Uh, and of course, the first judgment was at Calvary's cross, where when Christ died on the cross, every man was judged as a sinner. When you got saved, then God no longer looks at you as a sinner. He doesn't deal with your sin the same way that he did as a sinner. Now he deals with you as his son, and you will be chastised or whatever the case may be, uh, punished, whatever you do, if you don't confess your sins that you commit uh, here in this life. He deals with you as a son. He doesn't deal with you as a sinner. This is really hard for a lot of people to get. You know, uh, the Bible makes it clear that when you got saved, he separated your flesh from your soul. He seals your soul with the Holy Spirit of God. That soul can never sin. That's why, here again, 1 John chapter 3, he that is born of God doth not commit sin. Bible scholars and pastors can't handle that verse. They don't know what to do with it because they don't understand the process of how they got saved in the first place. So they have to change it to practice sin. No, it isn't practice. We practice it all the time. Uh, in fact, practice makes perfect. And uh, in fact, I'm planning on practicing it the rest of the afternoon, probably as you are too. But the bottom line is simply this. What's sealed and what's saved about you is not your flesh, it's your soul. And in that doctrine, your soul cannot sin. So when it says, he that is born of God does not commit sin, what is born of God about you is your soul, not your flesh. God separated your soul from your flesh, sealed you with his Holy Spirit of God. Now you are sinless in that sense, as far as your soul is concerned. Your flesh is something else, and that's where you've got to use the principles, all the things the Bible talks about, Romans 6, all those stuff, to die to self, die to sin, live to him. And when we do that, then at the judgment seat of Christ, then we get the blessings for doing that, keeping our body under subjection. When we don't do that, then in this life, we get chastised as a son. And that chastisement as a son will deal with God dealing with us however he chooses to deal with us to get us right uh, with God. And now I, and, and then, of course, uh, uh, the third judgment will be the judgment as a servant. And that means at the judgment seat of Christ. At the judgment seat of Christ, you will not be judged for anything right or wrong that you did down here. You need to understand that. If you were a drunk and you were this or you were that or you did this or you did that, when it gets to the judgment seat of Christ, that particular thing that you did will not be brought up because he dealt with it here as a son. You either confessed it and he put it under the blood or you didn't and he whipped you for it. When you get to there, you're judged for one aspect and that will be your attitude of heart and the spirit of by which you did what you did for God. Now, let me say this. Dale asked a question Thursday night. Uh, I don't know if he ever got the answer or not, but uh, it was a thing where it, it, I, I, I knew what it was dealing with, but I didn't do it, say it that night because I wanted to, uh, it just, but boy, it turned a light on for me. And I didn't want to say anything because I wanted to go back and work it out first, but I did. I, in fact, I thought about it all that night and thought about it all the next day. And finally I sat down and I, I, that is one of the most incredible passages uh, that I have ever seen and understood 
Uh, and I want to show you today what it's got because it deals with the judgment seat of Christ. Let's go back to his question there uh, in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 5. Now, the answer I gave you guys that night uh, was the right answer. I just didn't see the key that took it all the way. And, I, you know, it was, one of, it, was, it was probably a greater revelation for me than it was for anybody else. I just didn't say it that night because I wanted to get home and, and, and work it through and, and, and just think it through. But when I did, it just about knocked my socks off. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, let's look at it. I'm sorry, it was, it's... Three, five, is it? No, five. Five, five. Five, five. Okay, yeah, here we go. Now, this is what, now we already know the guy's in sin. This is the instruction that the church gets. And this, I'll show you what got me. I didn't say anything at the time, but it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I told him that, that the being saved here wasn't salvation and it has nothing to do with the soul. Uh, this is like 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. What know you not? Your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God. You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and your spirit, which are God. You notice it doesn't say soul there either. You know why? Because you don't have to worry about glorifying God with your soul. It's already sealed. That's why the soul isn't in this verse here. This is not talking about the soul. The thing that got me, and I, don't, I never saw it before, but it just hit me. Look at the last, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved, here it is, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I saw that, immediately my mind started, my wheels started turning, but I, I didn't want to say anything because I wanted to look at it and put it all together. That's the judgment seat of Christ. There's two days in your Bible. There's the day of the Lord, which is the second coming, called that day. And there's the day of Jesus Christ, or the Lord Jesus Christ, which is his day, which is the, uh, which is the uh, judgment seat of Christ. And this spirit being saved has to do with the judgment seat of Christ. Now, here's what you got. Putting the other verses that we, he couldn't correlate together... Hebrews chapter 12, verse 9 tells us that God is the father of all spirits. We know that. Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 7 says that all, um, all spirits go back to God when a man dies. Now look at 5.5. 5. It says whatever this man's spirit is, it's going to be revealed at the judgment seat of Christ. Now here, and, and then here's the thing that, that boy, just came out of the nowhere and got me. Job chapter 26, you got the six questions that God is going to ask at the judgment seat of Christ. Do you know what the last question is? Whose spirit came from you? Here's what you got. This is how this spirit gets saved at the judgment seat of Christ. Not saved in the sense of eternal security of being saved, saved from being coming to God as a disobedient spirit 
that you had that led this man into the sin that he got into. When you die as a Christian and you are dying with unconfessed sin in your life, total rebellion against God, your spirit goes back to God, but it goes back to God as a disobedient spirit of man that you had against everything that God did. At the judgment seat of Christ, he brings that spirit back up and you have to answer for it on whose spirit (coughs) came from you. And when you get right and confess your sins to God, it saves your spirit from coming up at the judgment seat of Christ against you. (laughs) Oh, that is powerful, man. And that's why the last questions he asked at the judgment seat of Christ is whose spirit came from you? Because that spirit's going to show up. The spirit of man is his decision-making process. If he aligns his spirit, his human spirit, to God's spirit, then he'll do the right things. If he leans that spirit toward the worldly things, then he's going to go that way. When he dies, whatever condition his spirit is in, and remember now, your spirit is never saved. That's why 1 Corinthians 7, 1, I gave you that the other night. Cleansing ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. Not your soul. Your soul's, your soul's sealed. Whatever state you die in, that spirit goes back to God in whatever state you died in, and then at the judgment seat of Christ, it comes back up again because it was that spirit that determined whether you served God or you did not. And he's going to ask you whose spirit came from you, and there's three answers. Your own human spirit, the spirit of the devil or God's Holy Spirit. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. It's going to be based on your service and your attitude of heart and the spirit by which produced the right attitude or the wrong attitude. And that's, that's, that's what he's talking about there. And when I saw that day of the Lord thing, I thought, oh boy, that's, there's something there. I need to go home and work that out. And then when I got into that, the Lord brought back Job 26, 4 to me, whose spirit, the six questions. And that was the last question. That ended it, man. Then it was clear. And this is a case like you find over there uh, in uh, Timothy uh, 2.15, where the Bible says that a woman uh, that dies, a uh, woman, uh, uh, if she, in childbirth, she shall be saved in childbearing. And everybody teaches that, not everybody, but a lot of guys teach that if a woman dies in childbearing, she goes to heaven. If you read the context, that's not, there again, the word saved there is not used in the word of eternal salvation. If you read the context, what she's saved from is being deceived. And what this guy here is saved, his spirit is saved from is showing up at the judgment seat of Christ in an ungodly condition. And then God asking what spirit, and when he does what's right and you confess your sin, you save your spirit from going through that. That's what he's talking about. That's pretty, pretty powerful. Now, the two definitive chapters on the judgment seat of Christ are found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Let's go there first.
And uh, <clears throat> verse 9. We are labors together with God. You are God's, uh, God's husbandry. You are God's building. <clears throat> According to the grace of God, <clears throat> which is given unto me, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builder thereon. But let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. So, uh, and then verse 11, for other foundation can no man lay, which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So the foundation is the day you get saved. And you're going to build on that foundation the rest of your life three things good or three things bad. And what determines that is going to be where you lend your spirit to. And of course, he tells us that we are to, we're going to build on this foundation and we are to be a wise master builder. <clears throat> Get the wisdom of the Word of God so you can build on this foundation the right things. And then uh, he tells you that the foundation is Jesus Christ. That's the day you got saved. And then verse 12, you build three things good, three things bad. The three things good will be gold, silver, precious stones. We've talked about this many times. Gold is knowing who he is, the deity, silver, the price of redemption, uh, precious stones, the people that you, you give what God has given you to, to. Or the three bad things, which would be uh, wood, hay, or stubble. And of course, uh, you know, it says here that the fire is going to try every man's work. And the key here is going to be, again, um, once you tie in uh, Proverbs chapter 26, the key is going to be here whose spirit came from you. Why did you do what you did? Not how, much, not how big a church did you build, why did you build it? What was the spirit in you that led you to do what you did? Not how many people did you win to Christ. What was the spirit inside of you that had you do what you did? Attitude, determining factor, that is the key. And when you see this and understand this, you know, it, it puts the whole thing into perspective for you. And it's a thing where, uh, you know, he, he talks about uh, um, he talks about the wood, hay, and stubble. And, of course, it all gets burned up. It has no resistance to the fire. The gold and the silver, as we know, Fire only purifies that. And the precious stones are impervious to fire. So we, we, we see that and we understand that. And, and here again, here's another one. If any man's work, verse 15, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss. He loses his millennial inheritance. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by the fire. Now, that's not dealing directly with he's going to get saved at that point. It's dealing with his salvation is going to, that he had as the foundation is going to carry him through. And the only thing that's going to get him through is the fact that he did trust Christ as his own personal Savior and God cannot reverse that process. But he loses everything. And of course, then he goes into 17, that if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. There it is. That destruction right there is what we saw in 1 Corinthians 5, turning over to destruction of the flesh. There it is. 
That's God destroying a man who violates his temple in this life. For which temple are ye? There it is. Which spirit came from you? And it's, it's one of those things that it's just, it, it, it's, it's the one of the key, there's two definitive chapters on the judgment seat and that is the first one. The second one is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All right, he says in verse 1. Now, this picks up where Revelation, or uh, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 3 um, deals with one aspect of it. Now, we're going to deal with the other aspect of it. And uh, it says, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, that's your physical body, we have a building of God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heaven. That's your soul. So you have a physical, this is, this is the, um, this is back to 1 Corinthians 15. You have a, you have a corruptible body and you have an incorruptible one. And this is the process by which when you got saved, God separated your flesh, your earthly tabernacle from the eternal one, your soul, and sealed it. And they can't ever get connected back together again. You see, that's what a charismatic or somebody who thinks you can lose your salvation, he doesn't understand that doctrine. And he, for you to lose your salvation, you'd have to go into the Bible and find out how, you, how God reverses that process. It's not a question of if somebody said, you believe once saved, always saved. And I said, no, that's not it. I believe once born, you show me how you get unborn. That's the issue. And there's no way that you can do that. When Nicodemus said, can I go back into my mother's womb the second time, be born again? He didn't get it either. And of course, you you have a physical body, the one that is going to be dissolved someday if Jesus doesn't come. And then you have a house, an eternal body that is uh, eternal in the heaven. That's your soul. For in this, which will be your eternal body, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Now what we enter into here is a deeper dimension of the um, judgment seat of Christ and where the judgment seat of Christ in 1 Corinthians 3 dealt with the foundation and, and wood, hay, or stubble. Here we're dealing with the, the body aspect. What, what you do lose if you don't be a wise master builder in chapter uh, three of First Corinthians, and he says, verse three. So if be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that which would be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up of life. And what he's saying here is, there's that at the judgment seat of Christ. <clears throat> If somebody didn't become a wise master builder and have the right attitude of heart, the right spirit, he's going to wind up in the judgment seat of Christ and when he loses everything by the fire, he's, he's not going to be clothed 
where the people who had the right spirit, had the right attitude, get handed out, Revelation chapter 19, fine linen, which is righteous of the saints. He doesn't. And for a period of time, and we can argue the period of time, at least a thousand years, if the ages of ages are true, and they are, that's on the downside 33,000 years added to the 1,000 or 120,000 years added to the 1,000 on the high side. Before eternity ever starts, and we'll deal with that when we get a little bit farther on up here, but that basically says if that thing holds true, that that person is going to walk naked. Now, let me just explain that, why that is. Jesus Christ hung naked on the cross for you and for me. You do understand that. And on that cross, naked, he bore the shame and the rebuke and the abuse that the world put him. Right now, God has asked you and me who are saved to bear the shame of his reproach. And that's going to leave you naked in a spiritual sense that you're going to get beat up left and right by everybody out there just like they did him. This is why the Bible says that we need to be open and honest and transparent in everything that we do, naked, nothing hiding anything, in a spiritual sense. If a man or a woman in this life, after they get saved, is not going for the period of time that God gives them on this earth, if you're not going to bear the shame and the reproach of Christ on the cross hanging naked for you, and you're going to reject it, you're going to do your own thing, you're going to forget it, you're going to walk away from it, and you're going to live your life as sumptuously as you can. Then, at the judgment seat of Christ, he will take away all the things that he had for you, and if you're not willing to bear the shame here for 50, 60, 70, 80 years, then you'll bear it over there for at least 1,000, maybe 33,000 added to that on the low side or 120,000 on the high side where you will walk. I can't think of anything during the millennium or into the pre-eternity position. I can't think anything more shameful than a child of God walking naked in front of everybody that's there and everybody knowing that the reason that they are is because in this life you've refused to turn your spirit over to God's spirit and your attitude toward the things of God and you kept them for yourself. And uh, it's a thing where Jesus said it. If you're faithful in a few things, I'll make you rule over many. And because that guy, woman, was not faithful and wouldn't bear the shame of his reproach in this life when he asked him to, then you'll bear it over there. And all the world, all, all the people, all the nations... Zechariah chapter 14, everybody that goes into that kingdom and for that kingdom goes on, everybody will, will see and understand that you are one of the people who did your own thing and rejected all that he did for you on the cross. If you ever grasp that, it'll put the whole Christian concept on such a high level that you, uh, which most of God's people never get. This is why God's people take their salvation so flippantly. This is why God's people get saved and do whatever they want to do. This is why they'll come every Sunday morning and hear the preaching of the Word of God, God giving it to you through a man instead of coming down and taking the fire out of you on his own, and you'll just walk out the door and it'll never get you. You know why? Because it's come to the place where you are so indifferent 
and so hostile in your spirit toward the Spirit of God that you're going to live your life and do your own thing. And what's going to happen one day is the great reality check of life. The brick wall is going to come right into your face. And it's going to hit you like a hungry giant coming home for lunch. And it's going to nail you right between the eyes that you're going to finally realize that everything that you did for him or he did for you, now you've done nothing for him. And the price to pay for that is one of being a servant. It's one of an attitude. It's one of whose spirit came from thee. And that will determine where it goes from here. Um, and of course, it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's an incredible thing. And uh, he goes on here when he says that uh, verse, uh, verse 10, context. Wherefore, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, I take you to that and go over to uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 18, where it talks about, again, somebody, the shame of their nakedness not appearing. And there the key word will be appear. Watch the word appear or appearing wherever you find it. Nine times out of ten, it's going to run the context of the judgment seat of Christ because this is the finished chapter on it. In Revelation 3.18, uh, I guess it is. 3.18 is to talk about the shame of somebody's nakedness not appearing. That'll be at the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, he says down there that uh, verse 11, knowing therefore this terror of the Lord, God's people have no idea of the concept of the terror of the Lord of the judgment seat of Christ. You see, God understands that we all struggle. We're not going to all do everything right. And, you know, he gets that. He understands that all flesh is grass and we're flesh. He gets that. And people think sometimes, you know, that if you you do some dumb, stupid things uh, in life or whatever that, uh, you know, or you die with unconfessed sin in your life, that that's going to make you naked at the judgment seat of Christ. That's not true. You, and we were all, I don't think any of us are going to die, <clears throat> maybe some of us, if you're smart enough, uh, you're going to die uh, without some kind of unconfessed sin in your life. It's just, that's just the way we are. But is it, that's not how God works. God looks at the overall context of your spirit and your attitude of heart. And he knows the fact that you are, you are, you are flesh and you're going to make mistakes. <clears throat> it's the difference like you find in Hebrews chapter 12. A lot of those guys died in their sins and they didn't get a chance to confess it. But when God wrote about them in Hebrews chapter 11, the great hall of fame, he never brought it up. It's a thing where when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, he's going to take the overall spirit of your life and the attitude by which you lived. And that is what he's going to judge you on. He knows we're going to make mistakes. The great example of that is David. Here's a guy who made every mistake on the book, yet he winds up being a king after God or a man after God's own heart. Are you kidding me? Why? It goes back to his attitude. And it's a thing where David paid the price. He loses his family. He loses his kids. He paid a tremendous price for the things that he did wrong. But it wasn't that that God saw. It was beyond that that God saw the attitude in his spirit. And that's why the greatest things that we can read to comfort us when we're going through a tough time is the things that David, when he shows you the best he has toward God, and that's why God shows him. It's your spirit. It's your attitude 
That's why the Bible says, uh, you know, that we're to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your soul. And he kicks in there in one of those verses and all your strength because that's what it's going to take. That's attitude. That's spirit. That's keeping your attitude and your spirit toward God and his spirit. And even though you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to fail, that overriding spirit will carry you through. But nobody gets that today. And it's a thing where, you know, Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5 is the terror of the Lord. What a day that's going to be, the day that God's people finally realize. You know, to me, when we get our glorified body, we talked about this the other night, you're going to be God. You're going to be everything that God is. You're going to be Jesus Christ in all aspects everything. And you're going to be God for all practical purposes. You're going to be the son of God, which we now know from the other night in Matthew or John is the being equal with God. You're going to be everything. At that point in time, at the judgment seat of Christ, for the first time in your world, you're going to actually now realize the full concept and context of what God did for you. You'll see in an instant his death on the cross with you on his mind. You'll see in a flash of an instant his, his laboring to get you saved, and you'll see the people and the places that he used and put in your life to bring you to him. You'll understand the complete magnitude of his love toward you. It won't be for God so loved the world anymore. It'll be for God so loved you. And you as an individual, for the first time in the mind of Christ, will see everything that God did everything that he wanted for you, everything he had for you. You'll relive in a heartbeat every message you ever heard, every preacher pouring his heart out to you, every time you refused everything that God did for you. You'll see it in a heartbeat. And you'll realize now because you have the mind of Christ what God did for you, what he wanted for you to do for him, and then what you absolutely refused to do for him. And it'll hit you like a freight train. And yet the truth of that is you have the mind of Christ right now that you can get 90% of it. I'm giving you a portion of it that you'll never get probably any place else. Well, if you do, you let me know where. But it's a thing where you can have it now because this book is the mind of Christ. You just don't have it in here. You got it in here. The key now is for you to take it here and get it in here. In that day, what's here will be in here. But you want the key to you now to getting it here is getting it here. The key in that day, that won't happen. You'll be him. You'll just have the mind. Right now, the key, if you want to get it in here, his mind, you've got to get his mind in your heart first, attitude and spirit, attitude of heart, and then you'll get it in here. And then you'll see these things that I'm saying. And in a depraved, godless world, where we are sinners in the sense of our flesh and struggle with things every day, you can see the vast majority and learn and understand about that day that's coming if you get the mind now in here that in that day you're going to have in here. But they won't do it. Too many things competing with it. They won't do it. But the judgment seat of Christ is that period of time that takes place during the tribulation period right after everything that happens 
uh, after the rapture, and then it begins to unfold itself, uh, you know, while it's going on down here, the tribulation. I want you to know those things uh, because even though the, the rapture and the marriage uh, of the uh, judgment seat of Christ are not dispensations in themselves, they take place during a dispensation, and I want you to understand the order of events that transpire. So we have the church age. Then the church age is, is over and is bridged with the rapture of the church, which ushers the church out and then the tribulation in. And, and then during that time, at some point, we will go to the, I would think immediately, we would go to the judgment seat of Christ. And uh, we would we'll, we'll deal with you know everything there, um, based on First Corinthians three and, and Second Corinthians chapter five. So those are the the keys. Any questions about any of that? Oh, it's a lot of stuff. I don't want to just walk over it without giving you. Yes, sir. No, I said that the day of the Lord Jesus is the rapture. Yeah. Yeah, because it's the day. It's a, it's the for you know it's why it's why the and that's a great question. You know, we think of the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord we, we think of a day as twenty four hours, but that's not true. The day of the Lord is an eternal day that has no end to it, and it goes through the thousand year millennium and on into eternity. That's why. In the, begin, in the Genesis, it says in the uh, evening and the morning were the first day, evening morning were the second day, evening morning third day, evening morning fourth day, evening morning fifth day, evening morning sixth day. When it comes to the seventh day, there's no evening and the morning. That's God's eternal day, the day of the Lord that doesn't end. It's the same way with the day of Jesus Christ. That's his eternal day, and it never ends. And uh, it picks up with the, starts with the rapture, but then goes through everything. They both have their day. And they're both days are eternal. It's just one is built around God with Israel, the other one built around Christ and the church. Same thing. Excellent question. Glad you brought that up. The things need to be, little things need to be tweaked here. Yes, sir. I want you to get it and understand it. Yeah. Uh, what happened to the Old Testament saints that resurrected with Jesus Christ? Well, that's a great question. He says, what happened to the Old Testament saints that went up with Christ? Are they up there in heaven? I would think, and that's, I, I can't give you a 100% answer on this because there's nothing in the Bible on it other than what we already know. And this is probably what you have. We know that right now that in the church age, which runs 2,000 years, we know that the Bible talks about death being like sleep. Here again, the Jehovah Witnesses teach soul sleep, totally against the Bible. But again, everything that anybody teaches in heresy has to have some kind of basis in the Bible. But Baptists are so stupid on that that the moment they see something like that, then they automatically equate when you see the real thing that, well, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. No, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses found and then corrupted it. But it's a fundamental teaching in the Bible. Jesus himself said, Self said when they went in to see this little girl that was dead, and they all said she's dead. Jesus himself introduced us to soul sleep when he said, She's not dead, she sleepeth. And what did they do? He he gave them one of the greatest keys anywhere 
uh, in all of the Bible about death and dying. And what did they do? What did they do? They laughed him to scorn. They didn't get it. So based on that, he told us that death is like sleeping. And when you go to bed at night, if you have a normal night, you didn't have too much pizza and beer before you went to bed. If you had a normal night, you go to bed at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, whenever you hit the sack. And if you have a sleep right away, fall off asleep, you know, you wake up at 6 or 7 in the morning. That, uh, you know, 8 hours there, 9 hours there, it seems like just a split second. It, it doesn't think like, and now if you roll with, toss and turn and wake up every hour, that's a whole different thing. But when you have a, when you have a, 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 a sleep that is a true sleep, eight or nine hours just blitzes through like it's just a second, it, almost like you close your eyes here and you open them up the next morning, um, something that every kid prays for at Christmas Eve, that it comes quickly, but it usually doesn't. So based on what Jesus said about eternity and sleep that this girl who was dead sleepeth. Remember now in 1 Corinthians chapter, or 1 Thessalonians 4, he says them that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So the idea of soul sleep originated with Jesus, not the Jehovah Witnesses. I cannot help the fact that they screwed it up like they do everything else. The original concept of somebody being dead sleeping is from Jesus himself. And, uh, you know, he, he, he laid it out. So there has to be some connection there. So I would, I'm thinking, and probably truthfully, what you have is we live in a world of time, but when a person dies, he steps out into eternity where there is no time. And this is a really tough concept to grasp if you're not thinking in that kind of, used to thinking in that kind of mode, mindset. So we always think of things in time. So we think a guy that died in 1600, you know, he's been dead for 400 plus years. We think of somebody who died two years ago that they've been dead two years. And that may be true as far as is this life is concerned. But when that person stepped out into eternity, his soul, there was no time. So the 420-some years are irrelevant as the two years are irrelevant because you can't say out in eternity this guy died 400 years ago and this guy, because there's no time to, to, to mark that by. So what you probably have is this, based on sleep that God gave us the model. A guy who dies in 1600, 1200, guy dies in 1800, guy dies in 1900, a guy died two weeks ago. They all step out into a place called eternity where there is no time. So it does not matter at what point in our time they died because now their spiritual body is not relevant to time anymore and they're in a place where there is no time. I would say, based on that, that a guy who dies, whenever he dies, or a woman, close their eyes to the sleep of death in this life, open them up, and it's time for the Lord to come back no matter what time he died in history, just like you go to sleep at 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 11.30, 10.30, but you'll all wake up at the same time. If you don't have a watch to tell you how long you slept, those hours all seem like they were the same. Well, take those different hours and put them to different dates of somebody dying. 
when you sleep, you're in an unconscious state that is as close to death as you're going to get in life. And uh, it's a thing where it's a, it's a picture by Jesus himself of what death really is. It's a sleep. So we know that on this side, we all count it by time. When you step out of this life into the next one, there is no time. So I would say, based on that, that no matter when a person died, when they open their eyes the next second, thousand years may have passed on this life, but it's just like Zippo on that side. And everybody wakes up at the same time, the same point, even though you all went to bed at a different time. Follow what I'm saying? Based on that, for us, I would say that the problem of the Old Testament saints fall into the same category. Uh, I, I, I would think that when they went back up, it's, it's hard to get your head wrapped around because we're all thinking of time. And, we're just, and I, I do it myself. I'm, and when I just said that, I'm thinking to myself, well, how can that be? I mean, what have they been doing for? They haven't been, they haven't been 2,000 years. It's been 2,000 years for us, but for them, it's just been bloop, bloop, and open it up on that side. And trying to get that, get your head wrapped around that, it takes, this is why most guys reject it. They don't have an answer themselves, but it couldn't be that. Why? Because that's what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. No. Well, that's what the Jehovah Witnesses taught that stole it from the Bible. But you don't know your Bible, so you don't get that. And, uh, I mean, you take baptism regeneration. Isn't that taught in the Bible? Sure it is. Acts 2.38. Be baptized remission of sin. I mean, in the name of Jesus Christ, remission of sin. There's baptism regeneration. But it isn't for you. But when you take it out of Acts 2 and put it into the church, then it's a heresy. But it's a Bible doctrine. So it's a thing where uh, you, you see how those things work. And most guys today, as certainly most Christians, are so uh, inept when it comes to the Scriptures, they just, they just can't handle all of that. And so they just, it just falls apart with them. They just don't have the ability to be able to see the things on that. That is what, when I talk about the depth of God, that's where you're at. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. You have to loud because we don't have a mic. No, they're probably just like the church age people. They're caught up in that eternity where there is no time, so it doesn't matter. Everybody's going to wake. It doesn't matter when you died, just like it doesn't matter when all you people go to sleep. You're all going to wake up at the same time, and for them it'll be um, second coming or rapture of the church, however you want to put it in there. Well, you know, it's a thing where that verse, absent the body, the prayer of the Lord, is true. It just doesn't tell you the time element between. That's true in an eternal sense. But it's not true, you know, in a, but, but the problem is there's no time in between that. Everybody who, absent the body, present with the Lord, is true of everybody no matter when they died, but it doesn't mean that the moment you died in 1600, you were up in heaven for 1600 years plucking your harp on a cloud someplace. It simply means that everybody fell into that sleep. Everybody's going to wake up at the same resurrection morning, and 
the time between 2,000, 3,000, 50 years, 100 years is irrelevant in eternity. It's only irrelevant to us. But in eternity, it doesn't count. It's one of those things where you've got to see the difference between what's going on in the eternal state where there is no time and what's going on in our world where there is time. So, Yes, Caroline. He doesn't. He doesn't. He did that. He'll do that in this life. When you get to the seventh seat of Christ, it isn't about you can blame it on your husband or you can blame it on your wife. He, he had that figured out. He knew what would happen. So at the seventh seat of Christ, everybody stands on their own merit uh, as an individual servant. Uh, whatever goes on between a husband and wife, good, bad, or indifferent, just takes place down here, and they either pay the price or have the blessing here or work through the issues here. But when you get to the judgment seat of Christ, it isn't going to be, well, Mr. and Mrs. now come up here and stand. Uh -uh. <laughs> because at that point, here's the key to it, honey, and that's a great question. At that point, your marriage is had down here was only for an earthly thing. Because now when you go there, you're preparing for the real marriage to him. So you can't be married to somebody else then and be married to him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. See that? So the marriage concept here, according to Ephesians chapter uh, five, five, is a is a picture in this life of the church age what it's going to be out there. But the marriage is over as far as when that person. That's why a legitimate case of divorce, where you're no longer married in the Bible, is what? 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 Death. Because God ends the marriage relationship at that point. And when a person dies and they're married and that person is no longer married because when they go to the judgment seat of Christ, they're going to stand as an individual and then they're going to go marry the Lord. So everybody stands at that place on their own merits. Does that help you? Yeah. You, you actually... So like, when a husband and wife get married, they, the two become one, right? So in this life. Only down here. Okay. Yeah. In this life because once you... Rapture takes place... Then who do you become one with? With the Lord. See? So marriage in this life is, is true, and it's a spiritual concept that we're to minister through, and we become one, but become one in the Lord. But that ends when the rapture takes place or we die. Uh, otherwise, if it, if it didn't, say a person dies and a, and a woman or a husband remarries somebody else because the person's spouse legitimately died, are they still one with a person who died? See, no, they're not. Because it ends at death or the rapture. Because then we become one with Christ. Right now, marriage in its earthly, depraved form of two human beings becoming one, two sinners becoming one, is a picture in this world of Christ and the church. And he gives that model to us now because together in Christ, if you're saved, we are one to do the work of God. But there's coming a time when that work in the church age will end and the work that we're going to do with God into eternity has to be my being one with him. It comes back to that full context of understanding how, at that point, how it all... Yeah, you'll know who you were married to. You'll know every fight and squabble you had. You'll know, you know, who broke the dishes and the glass and who did this and who did that. But it won't matter being in context. 
And uh, at that point, you'll know that you're going to step out now in the real marriage that this earthly marriage portrayed to get you through, to help you understand what to do for God was only a model for the one that's coming up that will be the eternal one. Does that help you? That's an excellent question, sweetheart, because you always ask good questions. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I cannot answer why your wife is smiling right now. <laughs> Go ahead. She's waiting for death. Uh, <laughs> no, that's not true. <laughs> so how this, how the marriage down here affects up there is the spirit by which you Yeah. I say this all the time. Another great question. I say this all the time. This is why you've got to be careful who you marry because two people unequally yoked will the unyoked, the unsaved person or the worldly Christian person will destroy your attitude and destroy uh, your spirit. You know, right now, you got a job to do. And, you know, God, God chose it to be the best way to do it is he sent them out two by two. So that's a good biblical concept. But the thing that gets because two, and, and just face it, right now in this life, a husband and wife, as a team, or should be invaluable. Most guys don't see it this way. A lot of women don't either. Most guys get so pridefully macho uh, that, you know, that they think they know everything about their life and don't need to hear from their wife. And, of course, you know, that's the stupid way to look at it, but that's how some guys are. A real guy who understands the concept will realize that he has deficiencies. His wife has deficiencies. He has strengths. She has strengths. And when the two become one, it's to blend <coughs> those weaknesses and those strengths together to do the job. And, of course, how can two walk together except to be agreed? And when you link up to somebody and at the judgment seat of Christ, you part alike. Uh, you, 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 because you did in this life, you helped each other. When you stand before the Lord as individuals, your spirit will be based on and your rewards will be based on what you did down here together working that thing through. But if you get the wrong person, then you're going to have somebody who's going to destroy your person, destroy your spirit, destroy your attitude, uh, or give you a fight all of your life to be and do whatever God wants you to do. And, and I'm not saying you can't overcome that as a husband or a wife. Certainly you can. I know people that have done it. You married Bozo the Clown, and you, know, you, you still can make it. You can still do what's right. And, uh, but it keeps you keeping your attitude right. And, uh, you know, it, it keeps you staying focused on the right things and understanding, here again, through the book, The Mind of Christ, the perfect context of what you're in. And you work with it the best you can, but it's not going to affect you with the judgment seat of Christ like somebody who's just going to roll over and just let the guy tell him what to do. Or, in many cases, the guy roll over and let the woman just run their life. Uh, it's a thing where, in that case, it gets destroyed. But you can work whatever scenario. Because you may marry somebody that uh, down the line doesn't mean you can't come out of the judgment seat of Christ good. But it depends on the determination of your attitude, determination of your spirit, and understanding this context that you're in, getting the help that you need. And I would add this, getting into a church that helps you figure it out and then move that direction. Uh, But, you know, but yeah, at that point, you know, it's a thing where, uh, the person in this life that you, God intended for us to work as teams. And uh, the husband and wife is a team. So he gave you a model. But when you get on to eternity, you're still going to be a team. 
it won't be your husband and wife here. It'll be Christ that you're married to, God, and it'll be God the Father, God the Son. That'll be the team as individuals. You'll all be sons of God. You'll all be God. You'll all be tied back to him as the Father with all you're going to do out into eternity. So that's how it works. Yes. I, I would, here again, you're getting me into an area that the Bible doesn't really say a lot to. There are guys who argue this, that if a baby dies before accountability, that they're not part of the body of Christ. I, I don't believe that. Uh, and the reason I don't believe that is because the Bible is very clear on the seven families and make up the seven family groups that make up the God and there's no provision for them. So I would say because they're in the church age, if they're under the blood, <laughs> they're under the blood. I mean, in the church, then they're part of the church. I would say, well, this gets, this gets scary. I would say that yeah, they get, uh, uh, you see, because I'll tell you something, Court. There's a reason why they died before the age of accountability. God wanted to accomplish something in somebody's life through taking them home early. And I would say, knowing God the way that I do, God would say, because you le- because I cut short your life and you died at a year or two years, whatever, and I did what I needed to do, I got more done that way than I would if you would have lived your full life. Yeah, you get a free pass over here and welcome into that kingdom. Got, that, that would be, if that's true, <laughs> man, wow. <sighs> this is why. Be careful with this. I wouldn't say this outside of this crowd. This is why in third world countries and Africa, India, and places like that, so many babies die of starvation and die uh, and never come because that's God's way. That's God's way of, of I, I don't have any, and I, I say that, and I'm very careful because that's can be pushed right up a sense of Calvinism, see? But it's not. It's just God all-knowing, know who he wants and knows why he wants, and that's up to him. I don't have any say in it. But that's why you have such a high mortality rate among third-world nations where there's not going to be any mission and not going to be any gospel. Why God does it this way with who? I have no clue, other than the fact that it's not has anything to do with Calvin or predestination. It has to do with the sovereign God knowing what he wants to do and what he wants to accomplish and how he's going to do it which I don't, he didn't call me up and ask me if it was okay, so I don't really have an insight into it. I'm going to tell you something. The quicker you learn this, the better off you're going to be. Everything that goes on in this life, I don't care what it is. I don't care how horrendous or bad that it looks. Everything that man does in this life that is against the Bible, some way, some shape, some form, God is going to get the honor and glory out of it. Some way, we may not see it and understand it. I don't see it and understand it, but I know God well enough to know this. He's a fair, righteous, just God who does everything with a perfect plan. And when man screws up the perfect plan, it doesn't change God's perfect plan. He just adapts to it and gets done what he wants to get done. 
and I don't be able to explain all that. I can't tell you how, and I've told you all the time a couple weeks ago, how about the American Indians, you know, all the time that's going on with Jesus over there, people in North America, South America, uh, you know, are they all dying and going to hell? I don't believe that for a second. I can't explain how he did it other than the verses that says he's the true light that lighteth every man. But I know that out of disorder and chaos will always come order and completeness with God. I just, we don't always get to figure out how he does it, so. Well, we'll hold up there. You got a pile of stuff today. We didn't even get into the tribulation, but that's all right. We'll get, I want you to understand those events. This is what Institute's about. 